most of the uh, incidents that you mentioned, which were lethal, involved fire. And that's not something we've seen really in decades. The last thing that, that comes to mind uh, for me was a refueling accident when Jos Verstappen's car went up in flames in the pits. But well, funny you should say that. I was there. I was commentating for Hungarian TV, and our little booth was bang opposite Benetton. And the car came in, and as we all know, 1990, 1994 German Grand Prix Hockenheim. And the whole thing went up, boom. Luckily, there was one guy by the name of Foster, and he had the intuition or the, the I'm not quite sure what the right word is, he grabbed the fire extinguisher and put out the flame, and several of the mechanics had to go to hospital to get bandaged up. Uh, Jos Verstappen, who was Max's father, I interviewed a week later in Budapest, just before the Hungarian Grand Prix, and he, he still had lots of burn marks on his nose. And had it not been for that particular fire extinguisher, it would have been a massive tragedy on an even larger scale. Welcome to the Forza F1 podcast. I'm Aaron Jenkins, the editor of Forza Magazine, and with me, as always, is Andrew Frankel, Forza's Formula One editor. This weekend's Bahrain Grand Prix consisted of two parts, the first three corners and then the rest of the race. The latter was fairly boring, with Lewis Hamilton scoring another masterful victory, followed by the two Red Bulls, but the former was exciting in all the wrong ways. On the first lap, Romain Grosjean's Haas crashed into and through the metal Armco barrier at nearly 140 miles an hour, split in half, and went up in a fireball. Miraculously, 28 seconds later, the driver climbed out of the inferno under his own power, leaped back over the barrier onto the track side, and walked with aid to the medical car. Amazingly, Grosjean suffered only burns on the back of his hands and is due to be released from the hospital on Tuesday. Andrew, it's hard to know where to begin with this accident beyond being thankful that Grosjean survived nearly uninjured, but one thing is for sure, I don't think we'll ever hear again any complaining about the once controversial halo, which was introduced a few years after the death of Jules Bianchi, died due to head injuries suffered in the 2014 Japanese Grand Prix. I suppose it's something to do with age, but I'm in a bit of a unique position in as much as unfortunately I've witnessed many, many of these accidents where the outcome wasn't as beautiful, as happy, as glorious, call it what you like. It really is a miracle, partly miracle, partly luck, partly judgment, um, partly some very brave people who ran into the fire to save him, such as the, you know, Dr. Roberts and, and the driver of the car. And it's a brilliant idea that the, as you know, this Mercedes, the safety car follows uh, the drivers round on lap one because that is when most accidents, big ones, tends to happen. And thank God they were there. Thank God they jumped out. Thank God they, they do wear, of course, full Nomex. I mean, they, they wear these things, exactly the same stuff as what the drivers are wearing. And they rushed in and they saved the guy. And, and it's fantastic. It's also tremendous tribute to the FIA. Um, the crashes I saw many, many years ago, but I can talk about it later, were a far cry from what happened, and let's hope it will not happen again for a very long time. 
Let's stick specifically to the halo for a minute. What happened is that the nose of Grosjean's car uh, penetrated the three between the three metal Armco barriers. And if it were not for the halo, the titanium shield that protects the driver's head, it would have been Roman's helmet basically impacting the barrier. That didn't happen. And ironically, Grosjean was one of those drivers who was against it back when it was before it was introduced in 2018. And I think the reasons for disliking it, it's easy to remember. And it comes down essentially to making the cars look ugly. But even the first season it was introduced, we had a tire bounce off. I think it was Alonzo's halo during a crash at Spa. And now this, there's no question that Grosjean would have been killed if not for the halo. Of course, exactly the same. I mean, as someone said, Jackie Stewart, must be thinking of Francois Sever. So am I. I was there. I love the guy. Fantastic driver. He would have been number one in the team. But if I mention, I mean, some of it, if you like, were even more tragic, like Seppi Siffert, a lovely Swiss guy, uh, racing at Brands Hatch, 68, 69. And the car rolled and it caught fire and there was no that the, the fire extinguisher was empty, right next to where he crashed. Then there were other cases. I mean, it's in my book, actually, the, the picture of, of Schlesser, uh, when Jackie X is driving past the burning car. So things were very, very different. Pierce Courage at Zandvoort, Roger Williamson at Zandvoort, Nicky Lauda, need I say more, in 1976. So this just shows the tremendous improvements, the FIA, and actually the guy who started, first of all, it was Jackie Stewart, whom everybody called, oh, you know, what's the matter with you? Um, You're feeble, you want cars to be safer. And then he joined up with Professor Sid Watkins, and they were the original motivators of this. Jean Todt, a very, very decent and sensible man, supported them. And look where we are today, and look where uh, Grosjean is today, smiling in a hospital bed. Yeah, Watkins was the guy behind the medical car that you mentioned that follows the follows the cars off the grid, essentially, and for the first lap, just in case something like this happens. Most of the uh, incidents that you mentioned, which were lethal, involved fire, and that's not something we've seen really in decades. The last thing that, that comes to mind uh, for me was a refueling accident when Jos Verstappen's car went up in flames in the pits, but... Well, funny you should say that. I was there. I was commentating for Hungarian TV, and our little booth was bang opposite Benetton. And the car came in, and as we all know, 1990, 1994 German Grand Prix Hockenheim. And the whole thing went up, boom, and it was right under the pedal club. So had they not uh, extinguished it, the whole pedal club would have gone up as well. Luckily, there was one guy by the name of Foster, and he had the intuition or the, the, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, he grabbed the fire extinguisher and put out the flame, and several of the mechanics had to go to hospital to get bandaged up. Uh, Jos Verstappen, who was Max's father, I interviewed a week later in Budapest, just before the Hungarian Grand Prix, and he he still had lots of burn marks on his nose, and he was not a happy boy, but actually he was a very happy boy. So that was the last one, 
And had it not been for that particular fire extinguisher, it would have been a massive tragedy on an even larger scale. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier that the um, <clears throat> medical crew was there very quickly and rushed to start putting out the fires. But in my watching of the video, they were almost coincidental because their efforts didn't diminish, I mean, literally the inferno that engulfed the half of the car that was on the far side of the barrier. It was down, I believe, to Grosjean entirely to come out of it. And if he had been knocked unconscious, I don't think there's any way that he would have been saved. No, well, the wonderful thing is that this, I, th I personally think that this little, um, this little box, this little shell that they're in, I think it's made out of carbon fiber. You mean the, the driver's deep. safety cell? Yes, the safety cell. I think I think it's built out. I mean, as far as I know, it's carbon fiber, unbelievably strong, and that helped a great deal. The halo, and let's put it, there was also an element of luck. The fact that he did not inhale the fumes like Nicky, whose lungs never ever recovered. I think I think it was his his lucky day, and at the same time, I must admit I was totally disgusted with Liberty Media and all their greedy guts for showing it time after time after time on a large screen which all the drivers could see, and I thought it was such bad form. It's not even funny. Yeah, you, uh, Daniel Ricardo spoke out about that. We could see from the during the red flag period that followed, we could see essentially shock on the face of everybody in the pit lane as they watched it. Well, don't forget that we've just talked about Jos Verstappen. That was 26 years ago. Most of the grid is under 26 years old. Lando Norris is 20. I mean, he didn't know such things happened unless he studied. I can't imagine that he's playing video or TikTok or whatever it is that they play. I shouldn't think that he goes home and switches on fiery crashes from the 60s and 70s. So to all these guys, it was a tremendous shock to their system and all credit. I mean, that's why I think the race was rubbish because nobody's heart was in it. They just wanted it to finish and go home. That's my feeling on the subject. The 7,000-plus members of the Ferrari Club of America, the world's largest Ferrari club, enjoy exciting track events, an internationally recognized Concours d'Elegance, and a wide variety of year-round social activities. The members of our 16 active regions and 52 chapters throughout the US and Canada also receive our monthly news bulletin, plus Prancing Horse, our full-color quarterly magazine. Our tremendous program of membership benefits even includes discounts at authorized Ferrari dealerships and selected retailers. So join today. Visit us online now at ferrariclubofamerica.org. You mentioned earlier that you thought Grosjean's escape was largely due to luck, and I agree with you on that. Uh, the safety cell is indeed carbon fiber, and it's designed to protect the driver against everything basically that they could think of. The halo is titanium, but he still went through the barrier, which shouldn't have broken. The car broke in half, but not in a way it was designed to. The engine is supposed to detach from the chassis, not the safety cell from the rest of the chassis. 
And as I said earlier, if he had been unconscious, this would have been a totally different situation. So the FIA, I think, is is right to claim some victories, some positives out of this, most notably that he's alive, but also that certain safety systems worked. But a lot of things didn't. The barrier failed. A marshal ran across the track, which is something that's led to marshals and drivers being killed in the past. Looking at everything that went wrong, what do you think we can what do you think we can reasonably expect from the FIA as this accident and all the things that happened are investigated? Uh, well, first of all, they have to uh, re-examine the quality of the barriers, the strength of the barriers, the um, whether it's steel or aluminum or whatever it is, it clearly. Um, but having said all of that, he did hit it at a very high speed at an angle which cl- clearly contributed. People, you know, racing drivers have been known to get killed because they hit barriers at the wrong angle. Think of Jochen Rindt uh, qualifying at Monza. Unfortunately, motor racing is is full of these rather sad things. Oh, absolutely, and, and Hamilton said so after the race that people forget just how much speed and just how much energy is involved, especially if, um, of course, we had Jules Bianchi's accident back in 2014, but um, but before that, it was Ayrton Senna and Roland Ratzenberger back in 1994. We hadn't, se- we hadn't seen a fatality since then, and we had only seen relatively minor injuries. The only thing that comes to mind is Michael Schumacher breaking his leg in 99. So, so it's not at all surprising that it sort of fades from consciousness. Yes, uh, um, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, how can I put it? I think everybody, as I, I, I said, I think I was talking to someone, but I said, know that Lewis has the championship. Mercedes have the championship. There's been an awful lot of people living in bubbles here, there, and everywhere. I think if you were to ask these drivers and the mechanics and the FIA staff, they would just like to pack up and go home. I think you've had enough of this season. Too many, you know, too many COVIDs here, too many COVIDs there. You know, um, Mercedes having to send home six guys, get another six out. You know, it's, I think it's now, it's called enough already. Be that as it may, as as you've said before, the show must go on. And it's true. Went on, it did, after I believe it was an hour, a little over an hour spent repairing the barrier. And then on the first, so the race regridded for a standing start. And within 30 seconds or so, we had another accident when Racing Point's Lance Stroll and Alpha Tauri's Daniel Kvyat touched. And the Racing Point ended up flipped upside down, uh, thankfully at very low speeds. And Stroll was fine, but once the safety car pulled in, that was sort of it for the day. Hamilton ran away, won. Verstappen was the only car that was able to put him under pressure, but not enough to actually make an attempt on him. And sort of the only thing that was at all interesting was Sergio Perez of Racing Point looked set for a second podium in a row, but then three laps from the end, his MGUK failed, and that was it for him. Racing Point got zero points on the day, which affects their run for um, – the third place in the driver's title, sorry, in the constructor's title. And a lot of money. And a lot of money, very correct. 
And it allowed Alec, the beleaguered Alex Albin, who had a heavy crash in practice, to finish in third place, giving Red Bull their first double podium finish since well, I can't well, even exactly. remember when. Yeah. So we've talked a lot this season about Albin being under fire, his seat being under threat due to his relatively poor performance compared to Verstappen. Christian Horner said that he was pleased with Alex's results, especially bouncing back from that heavy crash. But at the same time, he also said that Perez was, in quotes, still under consideration for the seat next year. And it seems that the problem that Horner is facing is that the co-owner of Red Bull, who is Ty, wants a Ty driver in his car. And it occurs to me that Albin is sort of playing in the Lance Stroll space. He's not the fastest driver in the team. You know, he's not even third or fourth fastest on the grid, but he's being kept there for essentially, in this, in his case, commercial reasons. And this seems like a shame for the sport. Yes, it's, it's um, um, I suppose that's, that's the way this sport is essentially. Rich daddies, uh, rich sponsors, rich, you know, nationalities, all sorts of things come into this. And uh, in this particular instance, I mean, this gentleman is as wealthy as Dieter Mateschitz. So we are talking about serious billionaires. I mean, they, they wouldn't know what an economy seat in a plane looks like. It's their team and they can do what they want. But exactly. it seems that they are looking at their racing team as a promotional tool to sell Red Bull energy drink. Which they sell by the billion. Rather than actually come up with the best possible package they can to win races. Um, You mentioned earlier that you've been around the sport for many decades. Is this a, is this a new development or is there, I mean, it's always been a, a rich man's sport for the most part. But is, is this putting a second or third tier driver into a seat for commercial reasons a new thing? Well, it's a funny old thing because, you know, first of all, you have daddies and then their sons become, you know, you know, you have Graham Hill, you have Damon Hill, you have Keke Rosberg, you have Nico Rosberg, you have uh, Gilles Villeneuve, you have Jacques Villeneuve. So there's that line running through Formula One. Then, of course, you have all these rich guys. That's another lot that's running through. And occasionally someone gets in through merit. Um, But talking of merit, um, I don't know how meritorious this young Fittipaldi is going to be, who is the grandson of my very, very dear friend, Emerson. Emerson and I spent a lot of time together in the 70s. Um, And he, of course, was double world champion, 72 and 74, and it's his grandson who will be joining, um, quite rightly, the Haas team. And can you imagine, now that Grosjean survived, can you imagine the cost of producing an absolutely brand new car and shipping it out to, because I'm sure they don't have total cars at these circuits, clearly. <coughs> I think it's going to be a tremendous um, there's a lot of people working very hard at the factory in England, let's put it that way. And 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 Pietro, you know, it's nice to have a fifty party, just like it will be wonderful to have a Schumacher. You know, these are, if you like, brand names in Formula One. So I, I read online earlier today that 
there's never been a family that's produced more Formula One drivers than the Fittipaldis because they have four. Emerson, his brother, Wilson. Christian, I think. Christian is his, is his nephew, is that correct? And now Pietro coming up. But going back, is the idea of putting in not the best driver in the car for commercial reasons something new? If you're, if you're not strictly looking at a paying driver that keeps the team afloat, is that something that has come up before? Going back to literally the 60s and 70s, you had people like Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart. They were there on merit. Emerson Fittipaldi was there on merit. Um, Carlos Reutemann was there on merit. Nicky Lauda was certainly there on merit. Jackie X was there on merit. These guys were not particularly wealthy. I mean, Clark was a, a, a farmer in Scotland. Jackie, Stewart's, Jackie Stewart was filling up the, the, the petrol pumps at his father's garage, these guys did get there on merit. Uh, as far as, if you like, moving on, someone like Lando Norris, of course, yes, he's very good, but his father is a banker. Straw's father is a billionaire. Um, Latifi's father is a billionaire. Uh, the Red Bull owners are billionaires. So it's, it's, it's a pretty elitist sort of thing, whichever we look at it. Uh, so we haven't mentioned Ferrari yet, and unfortunately, there's not a lot to say about the Scuderia's performance this past weekend. After their third and fourth place finishes in Turkey uh, at the previous race, you and I predicted that things would pretty much return to uh, normal for this season in Dubai, and they did. Charles Leclerc qualified 11th and finished 10th, scoring that lone point only after Perez retired, and Vettel qualified 12th and finished 13th. It was a pretty unremarkable result in an unremarkable race, although Leclerc still has a chance to claim fourth in the driver's standings where he's up against Perez and Renault's Daniel Ricciardo. That's about all we have left to, to fight for this season. Do you want to weigh in on which of these drivers you think will finish behind Hamilton Verstappen and Valtteri Bottas? Well, on merit, I think it should probably be Perez. He's been very, very unlucky. I mean, for his engine. And the Mercedes engine never blows up. So he was unbelievably lucky. He drove a brilliant race. Um, and at the same time, let's just remember how the mighty have fallen. Not very long ago, his teammate was leading a Grand Prix for something like 35 laps. Yeah, the Tuscan Grand Prix. And, and um, I said to you at the time that there are drivers who very often just do terribly well once. And then, of course, we went through the usual suspects from 1996 and 72 and so on. And, and this time round, he said, I'm all right, but I'm upside down, which he was, of course, in the car because Kwiat, Kwiat nudged Haas, Kwiat also nudged uh, um, Stroll. And by his own admission, he, he doesn't think that he's going to be in F1 next year. So maybe he has a bit of a cavalier attitude. Oh, I don't know about that. I think that. Grosjean moved across on him abruptly, so that wasn't Daniel's fault. And I think it was a little bit of a toss-up. He was—he sort of positioned his car in the wrong place, and Stroll came across and hit him. But he was—he was quickly sanctioned by the stewards, given a ten-second penalty. But I think his seat was under threat all along, what, yeah. given his performance relative to Pierre Gasly. Whether that was from a demoted Albin or from an F2 driver being promoted into a seat. 
Next up is the second half of the Bahrain doubleheader, which will be run on a different and faster track configuration. Uh, this is yet another different circuit that we have seen from the past this season, thanks to the coronavirus shuffling of the calendar. And it's not going to be a good race for Ferrari, I predict, since it will, will play against their strengths. But it might be very interesting, given that, again, we haven't seen this configuration before, and the teams will have to step up to the plate and learn something new. This is true, except that all the engines are exactly as is. So as you just pointed out that we cannot expect the Ferraris to suddenly zoom up to the top, just like uh, you know they did last year, of course, at unforgettable. If you, seems like a century ago that they dominated at Spa and, and, and Monza, but uh, maybe one day they'll, they'll do it again. I'm not expecting any miracles. I'm expecting... Lewis to wrap it up again. Um, he's driving brilliantly. Uh, he has a tremendous support team. I'll talk about his support team next time. Then, of course, oh, one thing which I found very distasteful, you may or may disagree with me, in view of the accident, this rather fiery accident, this miraculous escape, I felt that the fireworks after the race were an incredibly bad taste. Your point. I take your point. I hadn't thought about that. Um, I think I'm going to disagree simply because once the Grosjean situation was resolved happily and the barrier was repaired, the show went on. The race continued to its full distance, and that was just part of the spectacle. Yeah, this is true. And talking of spectacle or not, may I just remind our um, very loyal uh, listeners in something like 45 countries that if anybody needs a nice Christmas present, holiday present, I've got a few copies of my book left. It's on Amazon. It's $40. It's available, I think, all over the world. And better still, each book is dedicated to the buyer. That's it for this episode of the Forza F1 podcast. Join us next week after the second Bahrain Grand Prix. Thanks for listening this week. If you like the podcast, check out our website, forzamag.com. That's F-O-R-Z-A hyphen M-A-G dot com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter for the latest Ferrari news and reviews. You can follow us on social media at forzamag, F-O-R-Z-A-M-A-G, no hyphen.